Amen. Thank you for that opening. <clears throat> As you look at the baptism, it's good to look at the life of Jesus, that he did it as an example, not that he particularly needed to, but, that st but still that he needed to, because he became a man like we were, like we are. So, amen. So, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. I guess this is my first message since the fall. Since I felt, um, you know, the things that are really important become amazingly clear. Um, we have a near death, a near death scrape. Um, and I believe uh, we can look at it, we can see it as God's grace over our lives. Um, we can take it as God nudging us, God speaking to us. First, we thank him for his protection, for, his, for what he, he gives. And uh, in those situations that, that God takes us and he nudges us and he's, he's asking, are you ready for eternity? Are we ready to meet our maker? And it doesn't have to be near death. It can be an encounter on a highway. Somebody pulling over in front of us. And we should always be asking those questions. Always. Always ready. Jesus said, watch. <clears throat> Only things that have value in eternity matter. Once his life is over. I really had an opportunity to ponder these things. And I praise God for that. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you speak to us. We pray for your spirit over our lives. We pray for your covering and anointing. Over this time here, Lord, that you would speak. That I would simply, the words that I say would be, for you and from you, Lord, that you would anoint this time and the words that are spoken, and that you, your spirit would make your word alive for us. Lord, that you would do a work amongst us, in us, in our church and over us. Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, even right here amongst us. In Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, I want to continue um, with First John. First John, and I'm at chapter 3. So I've been doing this study going through the, uh, the book of First John. And I've really been blessed by it. Um, and these, I feel like these are truths... This is a message, this is a book that applies to every, every part of a person's life. To end whatever, whatever situation in life we're in, uh, these words can and they do speak to us. <clears throat> so chapter 3, 
um, continues on the same note that uh, chapter 2 ends on. Um, saying where he says, those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who don't aren't. And uh, he really drives home this point as we'll get into it. So first John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And this is, this is, a, this is a marvel of Scripture. That God did that. That God does that. That God desires that. And I'm, I'm not sure we can ever truly wrap our head around how and why this would be. That we should be called the sons of God. It's a marvel. The love of God. How, how do we measure? How do we, how do we see the love of God? Um, this song that we all know, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever spell. I want to read this one verse. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. And I'm, I'm not sure we, we believe that. I'm not sure we can, we can imagine that. Uh, the love of God written out like that. But basically that it's, that it's immeasurable, that it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond us. That shows us what we are. That we should be called the children of God. And it's a tremendous love. It's his tremendous love. It's his work that he gives us this opportunity, this privilege of being a child of God. So are you, are, am I a child of God? If there's one thing that matters when the dust all settles, it's the answer to this question. Are you a child of God? And you know, it's important enough to where we should stop our lives and find an answer to this question. Am I a child of God? <clears throat> Have we seen and understood that we are lost? And need to be forgiven. We live in a world. I think. Uh, I think that the Jews of this time. And the people of the time of the Bible. Had a bit, a bit of an advantage. Because they lived in a world. Where they felt. Most people felt. They needed to appease. Some sort of God. The Jews lived in a world. In a culture where they knew. They had to bring sacrifice to God. They had to sacrifice something. To become right to God. That they were in debt. That they were guilty. 
until they brought something to attain their innocence. We live in a world in our in, in the in the United States, we have this law that I think permeates our lives, and it's that we're we're innocent until proven guilty. And I think it, it affects us. Most of us grow up and we feel okay, we're innocent. I, I don't I don't I'm not guilty, I didn't do anything wrong. And throughout the ages, humans have this innate they grow up with a, with a bit of a guilt that there's something, there's a creator there that we need to appease. <clears throat> and in today's culture, in today's world, we have to ask the question, have we understood that we're lost and we need to be forgiven? And there's this conviction. Have we felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and been driven to ask to repent and to ask forgiveness? And this conviction, this, this realization that we're lost, that's the Spirit's work. The Spirit gives that conviction. The Spirit does that convicting. Have we accepted that God, through the life and death of Jesus Christ, is the only way we can be saved? And following that conviction, have we responded by crying out for him to save us? And has he saved us? Has he adopted and has he forgiven and adopted us? How do we know? I mean, what does it feel like? It should feel like being freed, freed from sin. Freed from bondage, and if we, if we, if, if if and for a lot of people, maybe there's not this overwhelming joy or exciting experience, but there should at least be a feeling of forgiveness, a feeling of being free and reconciled with God, <clears throat> a feeling that we're free from guilt. That we are forgiven, that He did forgive us, and that He loves us. Um, you know, there's there's a big difference in confession and repentance, and I think the two are are often confused. Um, confession is good. Um, in in my opinion, I think confession it can't hurt. But it's, it's not repentance. Repentance is turning towards God. It's turning away from our sins. Seeing sin in our lives and stopping and doing everything in our power to avoid it. You know, for someone who rarely confesses anything, um, a confession... Which is, which is telling somebody about that you sinned and it's bothering you and you're sorry you did it, it can be tremendously freeing. Um, it can be emotional. But it can still only be a confession. 
that doesn't really change our heart. And I know those two overlap, so I don't want to overly, I don't want to over, um, overdefine it. But, uh, and, and sometimes I, I believe people confuse that with a conversion or a born-again experience or with a surrender, surrendered heart, which is what God is, is truly after. God is after a changed heart, a changed person. Confession won't change our desires. We we can have the goal not to do it, but it doesn't change the desire. Our heart has to change. Our desires change from loving and serving sin to hating it, to loving God and serving others. Um, In scriptures, there's, there's very little written about how one should feel when they become a Christian, when they become a believer. Very little. There's a... There's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. And those are feelings, right? Large part of those. Love is a feeling, largely. Joy, part of joy is a feeling, a large part of. Um, peace is a feeling. Um, and, and those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those, those are evident when the Spirit is, is present. Love, joy, and peace. But in this epistle, we're going to speak mostly about um, what it looks like and not what it feels like. So John speaks mostly what it looks like. And all the epistles, they speak about what the Christian life looks like. How it how it plays out. Um, <clears throat> we're the adopted children of God. He says in this, this first verse that we should be called the children of God. Okay, we're the adopted children of God. So how do, how do children, how do we expect children to act? If we know children's parents and we expect them to act like their parents, like we know their parents and we expect them to act accordingly. If we know a child's parents and we, we know who they are, we, we respect them, we, maybe we're in a community with them, and their children act totally wild and out of line, we're... We start scratching our head. Okay, what's what's going on? This is not this child is not representing his parents. Um, I remember a time when I was a when I was younger. I went and visited different different colonies. Like I think it was Starland, probably. Um, and uh, you started running around with the boys there, and you got a little wild, maybe, and started doing things impress each other and uh, you get into trouble and someone comes along and he's he's an adult and he's assessing the situation and he starts asking who are you when what's going on here who are you and inevitably he'll ask who's your dad 
for some reason that connection it, it matters i don't know maybe it's just to drive fear into the boy uh, but there's a connection there's an expectation we have with of a child when we know their parents we expect them to represent their parents <clears throat> A large part of our identity is who our parents are, who our family is. If I know who your parents are and who your family is, I'll automatically expect certain behavior from you. If we ran into a child of a king, if we ran into a prince, um, you would expect him to behave and even dress, you know, in a certain way. Behave like a prince or a princess. To walk worthy of the position and reputation of your parents. Like there, there's this one king, a modern day king, the king of uh, Thailand. I don't know, you've probably never heard of him. But Thailand has a king. And... Uh, most people, if you know of him, you know of this clip or this picture of him where he walks around like this punk, like very needy punk, with one of his wives through this mall, and people took pictures of him. And, and it's everybody like, come on. He's 40, 50 or something years old, and he's acting like this punk. And, and there's something wrong. What, what? It's totally, totally off. He's a king. His sons are, are supposed to act like princes. Um, you know, if we ran into a prince, we'd, have, we'd expect him to act like a prince, to walk worthy of his position. To represent his, his father, a king. If his king is honorable, if his father is honorable. I guess it's maybe different in Thailand now. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> so going on. Are we walking as represented as the, as the adopted children of our father and king? Verse 2. Beloved. Now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Okay, so here he says, we're the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. It hasn't been shown to us. We don't know. We don't know all the details exactly what it will be like in eternity. How it will work. Um, we know. We just know that we will be like him. We will be like him. We'll be made like Jesus. We're, we're going to be brothers. Co-inheritors with Christ. So if, if Jesus is God's son, 
and we are the adopted children of God. That makes us brothers with Christ. Brothers through Christ. We call ourselves brothers in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> and everyone who has this hope in himself, purify, who have this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So this is the, here he says, this is the natural response to every believer to the world around him. For every believer, the natural response, if we realize this, if we realize that we are the children of God, that we're going to be like him, that we're going to be in his presence, the natural response of every believer is to purify himself just as he is pure, just as Christ is pure. One of the main signs of life, of the life of Christ in a person's life, is that they strive to be free from sin. There is an aversion to sin. A person is given a different nature. We're given a different nature to where we want something different. We don't want what, what, what we wanted in the past. The things that excited us don't, don't anymore. Look, look at this picture. There's, um, so picture uh, a, a pig compared to a cat. Okay. Um, you have a cute little pig here and you have a, a cute little cat. And the pig will naturally want to jump into. And there's a mud puddle. You say there's a mud puddle here. It's, it's smelly. It's a slew. What, what will the pig's response be? The pig will probably want to go in and snoop around and see if it can find something to eat, roll around, make itself dirty. Pigs love that. They like, that's their nature. They like playing. They like digging. They like rooting. They're built for it. <clears throat> it's, how they, it's how they thrive and survive. The cat, on the other hand, will do everything in its power to avoid getting wet. Everything. Unless it's like starving and it really, it's really going after a prey and, and, it's, and it's committed to, to getting this, 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 uh, this meal, the cat will not, probably not, not get wet. And if you take the pig out and you clean it up and you scrub it down and you, you soap and lather it, um, and okay, now we're, we're all squeaky clean and we can tell the pig to stay out, stay clean. It, what, what's going to happen? Pig will naturally, you know, it might not run to the puddle, but it'll just wander over and go right back in because it has no value it naturally has no value of being, you know, squeaky clean. That pig doesn't really want to be that clean. Um, they, like, they like a clean area when they're, when, they're, when they're sleeping, when they're resting. But during the day, they're, a lot of times, they're usually rooting around. And it's their way of cooling off. 
And if you sprinkle, you know, you sprinkle a little water, a little dirt on a cat, what, what's its, what's, how is it going to respond? It's probably going to run off to a private place and, and start bathing itself, cleaning itself off. It has an aversion to being dirty. It doesn't want to be dirty. Um, and, and so there, there's a different nature. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being dirty sometimes. You know, some children, children are very different. If you have a few children, you realize they're all very different, different natures. Um, if, you, if you watch a group of boys walking along, they're walking along the road, um, and there's a, mud, there's a puddle, maybe a puddle in the middle of the road. And uh, you watch the boys a little bit. Some of the boys, um, if they're not even thinking about it, they'll come up to the puddle. And some boys will, uh, will automatically try to avoid the puddle. They'll, they'll walk around it, like most adults would. Not all adults, but <laughs> most adults would walk. Kind of, so some children just kind of walk around the puddle. Um, so whatever, no, not thinking anything of it. Um, some boys just keep walking like they never saw the thing. Just straight through. Okay. And some boys will go out of their way so they can get through, walk through the middle of the puddle. And then they'll get this, uh, this urgent employ of Paul's to splash as much of the water out of the puddle as they can. And, you know, it doesn't make them bad or worse. Boys, it just shows there's different personalities. Um, there's different, just naturally, they, it matters to them. They get cared. And not that water, that mud puddles are, are good or bad. We generally try to avoid them, right? <clears throat> but when somebody becomes a believer, there's an aversion to sin. A believer tries, does everything in his power to avoid sin, to get away from it, to become clean, to hate sin. Sin and things that they used to love doing. Things that they used to enjoy, they don't do anymore. Things that they did in their past now bring them under conviction to where they know it is wrong. And they're convicted. And they repent. And they turn away and they turn to God. Verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and that in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is chaos. Sin always leads to chaos. It leads to, it leads to destruction. It leads to disorder. And sin very often it comes in, it comes as very innocent looking temptations. 
But sin always takes us further than we want to go. We've heard that many times. It's always worse than it first seems. The devil is a master deceiver. He's been at this for thousands of years. People are largely the same as they've always been. So he's probably getting better at his game. He comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. The Bible describes the devil as a as that he can come as a wolf in sheep's clothing, or deceivers can come as wolves in sheep's clothing. And the sheep, they, they look at it and they can't see a wolf. Um, but there's something different about this sheep. And they don't know what it, what it is exactly, but it's something intriguing. There's something exciting. There's something dangerous. And those things are often the things that attract us. It's just things that look a little dangerous, a little, you know, exciting. But sin is lawless. Sin, sin leads to chaos and destruction. And whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither known him has neither seen him nor known him. And this is a this is a pretty blunt statement. <coughs> I think it means to say whoever sins willingly, because in the previous chapter, um, he strongly John strongly made the point that um, no one is without sin. Um, so. <coughs> The good, the right way, God's way, leads us to order, to peace, and to security. Peace and security. Sin leads to brokenness, chaos, disorder, hate, corruption, depression, and eventually death. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For his purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. <clears throat> Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And I want to I wanna go back a little bit to what I said earlier about this nature. That's this, that's this different nature that God puts into his children, that whoever has been born of God does not sin because they have God's nature. They can't live with sin. They can't allow or have sin in their lives for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God because of God's life in him that life God's life is growing should be growing and thriving in that person's life and sin should be put to death 
should be um, should be star should be put away and, and stifled and killed. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And many people would have been saved from a lot of deception throughout the years of history, and would have been saved from being sucked into cults if they would have known and believed this, these words. <clears throat> I think the Apostle John is putting it, simply and, and, uh, putting it as simply and directly as possible here. He's saying those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who don't are not. And he, this, is, this is repeated at least three times or more throughout this book. Uh, basically, you are what you are. Uh, it's like saying people who eat will be filled. It's like saying if you put salt on your food, it'll be salty. If you paint a wall red, it'll be red. Those who are righteous, those who practice righteousness are righteous. Those who don't are not. <coughs> those who sin are of the devil. If you run into someone you think is a spiritual purpose person and he's practicing sin or he's living in sin, they're, they're probably not as spiritual as they seem. Um, we have these ideas of, of what we consider spiritual, what we consider great godly men and women. You know, if we meet someone, we run into someone and they talk about spiritual things, we're generally impressed. Largely because we, we don't talk enough about spiritual things. We're impressed with people who talk a lot about spiritual things. And uh, they can have long spiritual conversation and explanations. But most cult leaders come on this way. They come on being able to speak on, on spiritual, deep spiritual concepts, spiritual things, and having great revelations. That's how they come. They have revelations. But John says here we should measure them differently. He says, those who practice righteousness are righteous. Those who practice sin are of the devil. That's way more blunt than I would, than I would have put it. What is righteousness? How, what, what, how, do we, how do we look at it? We can get that directly from the Bible. And a lot of these cult leaders, you look at them, and, and over the years you hear, okay, he's doing this and this, and there's, there's fornication, adultery going on. And all these people are just blindly following and thinking he's this wonderful saint. What's going on? They're blinded. They're deceived. They're thinking he's spiritual and he's living in sin. It's, they're thinking he's, he's, a, he's a godly spiritual guy and he's of the devil. John would say he's of the devil. He's living in sin. He's practicing unrighteousness. <clears throat> And, and at the same time, um, we have to also be open and not, not judge people by our culture and our upbringing. There's a lot of things in our culture that, that we 
our way of life that we practice, that we have, uh, things we do, the way we do things, that they're not, they're not necessarily um, wrong to not do it the way we do it. For instance, the way we dress. We don't, we don't necessarily, we, we, we have a certain standard of the way we dress. And we felt as a church, this is, this is how we want, this is, how, this is what we want it to look like. It's not the only definition of modesty, but it's how we feel this, this, is, this is modest, and that's how, we, that's how we're just going to define it. But if we, we should be careful when we're looking at other people through those lenses that we don't judge them as being immodest just because they're, they're, they're doing it differently from us. The Bible doesn't give us a clear definition on exactly how to dress, on a clear-cut dress code. The biblical standard says modesty. Um, to walk around dressed immodestly, I feel, is, is unrighteous. Um, but maybe some people in their culture, um, what would make me a little bit uncomfortable um, is, is modest in their culture. And I can leave a little bit of room for that uh, because that's what they were taught. That's how, that's how they understood and, and they believe they're dressing modestly. Um, so we we don't need to we don't need to dish out judgment, but it's the clear things of Scripture, the clear right and wrongs of Scripture, that we can stand on and we can say and we can preach. This is wrong. This is just this is not right. There's no room for that. <laughs> it comes down to love. In this, the children, verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one who murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. The children of God and the children of devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So those are the two, those are the two metrics that he gives us to measure ourselves by. That... Um, those who do not practice righteousness and those who do not love their brothers. So those who do those two um, are righteous. And Jesus said, gave the, the rich young ruler the same answer. He said, um, he says, what are the two greatest commandments? He, uh, no, that was uh, the people who had, uh, the people who challenged him, the Pharisees. And what are the two greatest commands of scripture? And he says, and he answered them to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. 
Those were the two, those were the two greatest. And he says, on those two hang all the law and the prophets. All of God's law are centered around. That's what they're about. They're about loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. That was the whole law of Moses. That's what it was, that's what it was centered around. <laughs> and uh, he brings up the story of Cain here. He says that it wasn't really that he hated Abel that much. But he said his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And they opposed each other. And they fought against it. They were, they were, they were in opposition because Abel was righteous. He was living and walking righteously. Cain was not. Cain was living in sin. He was living unrighteously. And those two clashed. So much so that he ended up killing his brother, murdering his brother. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. There is and there will be an opposition to and from the world. In this world, in our life, in our, in our Christianity, there will be an opposition to the world. There will be a battle, there will be a conflict between our spiritual life and the world around us. They're total opposites. It's different ideals, different values, different goals. The world values what? The world values power. They value influence. They value authority or being able to, having authority. The world pursue, pursues to protect and preserve self. It's basic evolution, the theory of evolution, survival of the fittest. That's the world. I look out for myself because no one else will. I look out for my goals, my work, my reputation, my stuff, my money, my personal life. That's the world. Jesus said... Those who seek to save their life or preserve their life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Those who seek to lose their life for my sake will find it. <clears throat> We're called to lose our life in this world. To seek him, to seek his life. So I'm going to close with verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren, he who does not love his brother abides in death. This is life and death, loving your brothers and sisters. That's, that's the ultimate metric. Walking righteously and loving your brothers and sisters. Not how much we love our family, our friends, but how much we love the family of God. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you love, that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's so simple. 
And yes, so challenging. So, amen. I want to pray God's blessing over you all. And uh, may God help us grow in that. Amen.